Hello and welcome to another episode of Sons of Ignatius podcast. I am Father Niall Leahy, an Irish Jesuit living and working in Dublin, Ireland. And I want to wish all our listeners a very happy and joyful Easter. I hope your Holy Week and Easter season was very blessed. And I didn't get to do an episode for Easter this year because in the parish here on Garden Street, things were just quite busy, as you might imagine. But anyway, we're back with another episode of the podcast. It's great to be back. And I'm joined today by Father Adam Hinks. Adam is a Jesuit friend from Canada. We lived in the same community in Toronto. And when we weren't studying theology, we were watching Netflix and basketball on the television. Yes, uh, some great times. It wasn't as though that was all we were doing, obviously, but, but a really memorable highlight was uh, when the Raptors won the basketball championship, the NBA championship, and I remember watching that with you and another confrere, and uh, a, really, a really memorable evening. That was the first time ever they had won? That's right. Yeah, yeah, we got the team in the 90s, and this was the first time that we won the championship, and the first time a team from Toronto had won any major sports championship in many years. And they beat the Golden State Warriors. If memory serves. You know, the best team won. It's a best of seven series. So it's not as though it's one game and it can be a fluke. They, you know, they took the series fair and square. I learned a lot about basketball in my years in Toronto. And there seems to be two ways of setting up a team. One is get like two or three like superstars who just carry the team or get an even spread of talent amongst your team. And Golden State had like some major superstars, including Steph Curry, whereas Toronto had a more even spread of talent. And when some of the superstars got injured for Golden State, that just paved the way for Toronto to go and win it. You think they would have beaten them anyway, even if Golden State superstars hadn't have gotten injured? Well, I wouldn't put it that way. <laughs> Uh, I think the be- I think the better team won fair and square. Uh, okay, and yeah, and then on uh, when we weren't watching basketball, we were watching Netflix, and Suits was the the show that we got into together, starring Meghan Markle and some lawyers with freakishly impressive memories and very impressive suits. Yeah, and the other uh, fun thing about that show is that it was set in New York, but it was filmed in Toronto, so it was kind of neat to recognize landmarks and locations as we were watching it and point them out to each other. So, yeah, we did actually study when we were there. <laughs> and you were studying theology. Your other major interest, let's say, is science and physics. So, Adam, would you mind just sharing with us how you got into both, let's say, science and philosophy and theology? Yeah, thanks, Niall. Before I was a Jesuit, I studied physics and astronomy. And before entering Arno Bishop, I was working on a doctorate in physics down in the United States. So that's what I was studying. I loved it. I, I was good enough at it to go on to higher studies. In particular, the particular field I'm in is cosmology, which is the scientific study of the universe as a whole. So we're talking about big physics here, not small physics. 
Exactly, yeah. That's the technical term, isn't it? Big physics. Yeah, that's a pretty good way of describing it. We can go with that. But essentially looking at the universe as a whole over space and time. So that's what I was studying before becoming a Jesuit. Quite a jump then to go from a PhD in physics and astrophysics to being a Jesuit novice. How did that come about? Well, yes and no. Um, I've always been a person of faith, so it's not as though I had a big kind of conversion experience. While I was in graduate studies, I was discerning this vocation to the Society of Jesus. That's when I first started hearing that God might be calling me to this. So in a certain way, it wasn't like a big change because it was a continuation of who I am. But on the other hand, as you're kind of alluding to, going from being a student, doing a doctorate, being immersed in the intellectual life, to the novitiate, which is very much a place of prayer and discernment of service. You go off and you do these so-called experiments outside of the novitiate. It was quite a different lifestyle, you might say. But pretty soon, I suppose, after, you know, once you'd taken vows and got back into studies, the studies of philosophy and theology, I guess you could see how your interest in science and physics could come into dialogue with your studies then in philosophy and theology. To be frank, early on, I wasn't as interested in the relationship between faith and science. Uh, For me, kind of growing up and as as a young adult, it wasn't something that bothered me in any particular way. It wasn't something that that piqued my interest particularly. But I started noticing that for many other people, this was a big question. And the fact that it was a big question for other people made me think, well, I should learn a little bit more about this. I should pay more attention to it. And so during my philosophy studies, for instance, during my theology studies, I kind of deliberately started looking at interdisciplinary questions or questions about how faith and science and philosophy can interrelate. And in doing so, I I became interested in the subject. So it wasn't necessarily your question, but you wanted to respond to other people's question or or maybe even doubts about how compatible, let's say, theology and science are. You know, it's it's funny you should say that it was no big deal for you because my father, he's now retired, but he was a science teacher and biology was his main area of interest and I remember once I had doubts I was having doubts about my faith in the existence of God and he just turned to me one day in the cards but Niall God does exist and definitely the fact that he was a science teacher <laughs> kind of added I think to the <laughs> the credibility you know of his faith but it was just absolutely you know for him there was no question of any kind of trade-off or conflict between his work or interest as a scientist and and his faith in God. Okay, so you're you're going through your Jesuit formation and you're studying philosophy, theology, getting into the questions and the interdisciplinary questions. And at some point, did that sort of grow, that curiosity or interest grow into a sense of mission? Yeah, I would say I from the beginning, I thought this is something that perhaps I could offer as a Jesuit to the church and to society at large. I wouldn't say I had... I was fixated upon it, or at least I hope I wasn't fixated upon it, but I wanted to leave that possibility open. You know, I remember when I was a candidate, when I was discerning my vocation, I was speaking once to the vocation director, and I said, you know, I'm doing this doctorate, and he was very much supportive of me finishing that, which is something that I wanted to do, rather than kind of giving it up and entering right away. Um, And I said, you know, I'm, I'm doing this advanced degree, And I'm not saying that I insist on it being put to use, but, you know, 
how will it be used, more or less? He said to me something like, well, I can't tell you how we're going to use it, but I can tell you that it would be stupid of us not to use it in some way. And I'll tell you one thing, we're not stupid. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So your training would, yeah, was, was sort of, it was ordained that at some point, yeah, it would, it would become part of your mission. And yeah, like it's an incredible toolkit to have. Yeah, but in what way, I think, is something that, you know, as Jesuits, ideally, we want to, to discern. In general, we, we're, we're choosing between, between goods, or usually we're choosing between goods, and, and part of our charism is choosing, well, what's the greater good? So something kind of fell into your lap then. It's been a few years since we've spoken, but since then, you've landed uh, quite a nice job in the University of Toronto. So your mission has become very concrete. Could you tell us a little bit about that? So when I was in my final year of theology studies, I think it was then, the University of Toronto advertised a position. Uh, and it was a position that was interdisciplinary, involving an appointment in the Department of Astronomy, which is my own field, and in at St. Michael's College, which is one of the, the colleges at U of T um, that's Catholic, that has a program called Christianity and Culture. And there was a position being advertised that was uh, joint between these two different programs that was really well suited to my background. I wouldn't say it fell into my lap in the sense that it was an open application. I, I was competing with other applicants, but it really was uh, suited to, to my own background. So in that sense, it was quite providential. So there had been some donors that wanted a position like this at the university, and this is what they came up with. And so I'm the first person to hold the, the Sutton Family Chair in Christianity, Science and Cultures at the University of Toronto that's based in these two units, in astronomy and in Christianity and culture. So thank you to the Sutton family, sincerely, for making that possible. So you, you teach, let's say, astronomy, and then you also teach philosophy and theology. What's the difference? You know, I mean, what's it like to teach astronomy and what's it like to teach philosophy and theology? Like, are, are those classrooms very different places? I would say what they have in common is that the students are there to learn, or at least that's my hope, is the students are there to learn. The subject matter is, is obviously different, but what unites them is kind of the, the quest, the search for learning, hopefully for truth in some appropriate form. What's obviously different is kind of the methodology and the style. Last term in the fall, I taught Astronomy 101, which was one of the biggest classes at the University of Toronto. I co-taught it with a faculty colleague, and we had a whole bunch of graduate students. How many? The enrollment was 1,500. There are lecture theaters big enough? Yeah, we have it in Convocation Hall, which is the building where you graduate at the University of Toronto. So it's big enough to hold over 1,500 people. I didn't know there were so many aspiring astronomers uh, in universities these days. Well, this is a course without a lot of math or technical background. It's really a course for students in the humanities and the social sciences who want to learn a little bit about astronomy, and it gives them one of their breadth requirements that they need to graduate. Do you have to say at the very start, by the way, folks, this is astronomy 101, not astrology 101, and then like a whole load of people get up and sort of leave and go, oh... Well, maybe a good thing I didn't do that because no one, no one got up on mass to leave in <laughs> yeah. the first class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the first class was both me and my colleague presenting, and then we kind of took turns doing the lectures. 
It was a big contrast because that was a huge, a huge class where we're introducing kind of the basic concepts, mainly of our own solar system. That's what the course was focused on. And then the, the courses that I've taught at St. Michael's College have been smaller and kind of more focused in their subject matter. The astronomy class was a first year class. The other classes I've taught at St. Mike's have been third or fourth year classes. But I can mention one of the first things I was asked to do in this position was design a brand new course that would be jointly offered by both units. And so I created a course that I've now taught twice called The Bible and the Big Bang. And what we do in that course is the students learn kind of some fundamental cosmology, the science, and then we also look at the Abrahamic traditions of creation. And then a lot of the course is asking questions about how these two different ways of looking at cosmic origins might or might not relate. So I suppose the reason why or a reason why people might feel that there is some kind of conflict or incompatibility between, let's say, science as a pursuit and faith or theology as a, an academic pursuit, is that science is really about finding out the truth or knowledge about the world, things that are actually the case and trying to describe reality, whereas theology or faith is about belief and something just very subjective and personally meaningful. Do you come across that in your work that people are pursuing sciences like, no, this is just objective truth and that something to do with, you know, faith and theology is just meaningful and subjective? How do you deal with that? I think that perception is certainly out there in our culture in the West. I think both of those are inadequate descriptions. Science does seek to be objective, but it's performed by human beings. And, and the questions that we ask that we think are important are human questions. So that's for science. So you're saying that, okay, science is seeking to be objective, but scientists, because they are people, bring a subjective dimension to the practice. Definitely. Uh, and I don't say that in a pejorative sense. I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. But which questions are important to us? Which questions drive the science that we do? Those questions aren't at all kind of set in stone or a priori. They emerge out of a culture, right? And, you know, to give a very kind of concrete example, as scientists, we need to be funded. And to get funding, you need to be doing something that people are interested in, in funding. Now, that doesn't mean that we're beholden to the funding agencies, but it's just an example of how we live in a community, we live in a society, we live in a culture, and that conditions the questions that we raise in science. Now, every now and then, you want someone who comes along and shakes that up and says, no, this is really important, or listen, we really need to be looking at this. So it's not as though we need to be completely determined by our culture, but it's just to say that it's not as though we're kind of like, you know, robots searching after some kind of pre-programmed truth. Right, right. We're human beings. Yeah, that's really good. And I suppose, are you also going to say that then that theology... Uh, philosophy isn't entirely subjective either that is getting some kind of a, a take or a, a grasp on things that really are out there and, and describing them truly yeah yeah religions you know especially christianity makes truth claims right we have a creed we believe in certain historical events we think that we can say certain things about god that are true and that are objective to circle back to belief, belief is something that, that exists far beyond just religion. Belief is part of our everyday life. A lot of the time when we say we know something, we're actually speaking from a place of 
belief. So, for instance, I, I can't remember what your hometown is. Dundalk. So I've, I've never been there. I suppose I could find it on a map. I believe you that that's where you're from, and I think that's perfectly rational. A great example, too, comes, comes from within science. We use belief all the time in science. So the, the, the work that I do generally happens in large collaborations. I work with kind of international collaborations of dozens or hundreds of other scientists. So we work on big observatories, and no one person knows everything about these observatories or, or about the projects that we're working on. We really need to collaborate. And that means that we're constantly believing each other. And trusting each other. And trusting each other. And again, it's not as though that's a blind trust or an irrational belief. You know, we try and check results. You might get more than one person to do the same thing. But at the end of the day, no one is kind of generating all of the knowledge for him or herself. There's a trust, there's there's a belief. And I think if you, if you kind of think through the all the different instances of belief in everyday life, in science, in history, whatever, whatever it is, you'll see that we treat it as rational, and I think it is rational. So the scientific community and the, let's say, religious communities are communities of knowers, and it's something that's done together and, and collaboratively. Okay, so you're working in an interdisciplinary way, and you're bringing science and philosophy and theology into dialogue with each other. What does that dialogue look like? Is it theology gives, let's say, the big picture and science just fills in the details? Or does, for example, you've mentioned creation ex nihilo and the big bang you know so big bang might kind of somehow fill in some of the me mechanics of how creation happened or something or is, is it a two-way street how does that work i would first of all say that as i said earlier that theology that philosophy that astronomy the natural sciences that is have their own proper methodologies and, and their own types of questions so to kind of give a, a concrete example along the lines of what you were just suggesting when it comes to kind of cosmic origins, what science can do is tell us about physical conditions. It can tell us about physical processes. We can write down equations that describe how, you know, how physical processes unfold and the laws that govern them. Philosophy would kind of get more at questions of more fundamental questions about existence, say. What does it mean to exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? And then theology brings God explicitly into the picture. And, and properly speaking, theology begins, at least, at least in Christian theology, theology begins with revelation. So, you know, God has spoken, and we reflect upon the Word of God. And obviously within that Word of God, there's a lot about creation. Okay, so you spent a lot of time, and you do spend a lot of time looking into telescopes. Well, I hate to disappoint you and your listeners, but we actually no longer kind of like literally look into telescopes. So, so the, yeah, no, it's all, it all kind of gets recorded by, by computer and then you... Oh, God. Worst astronomer ever. <laughs> okay. That means that it's a lot of fun when there is kind of, a, you know, a small amateur telescope. It's a lot of fun to, you know, to look, literally look through the eyepiece. So, quote unquote, looking into telescopes, using telescopes. So... You spend a lot of time using telescopes. Since you have a relationship with God, how does your faith lens affect how you experience that? How does that affect your view of what's up in the sky? A lot of this is just hard work and persistence. But I think some of the great moments in science are when you can finally take a step back 
and see what you've discovered or see what you've done and contemplate it. I think the scientific vocation is contemplative to a large degree. Because, you know, why else would grown men and women devote their careers to studying something that doesn't have like an immediate practical application? You know, there's some sciences where you can kind of make the case that, yes, you can do this because it produces technology or you discover medicine or so on. Whereas astronomy is, is much more detached from everyday realities, that is everyday living. You're turning your gaze up and you're looking at the heavens. And the fact that we think this is worthwhile, I think, is a, is a significant clue about who we are as human beings and who we are spiritually. That we have this desire to just understand and to contemplate and admire the beauty of the heavens and, and want to figure out how they work. Could you share with us just something cool, <laughs> something beautiful about the universe and the furthest reaches of it or way out there? Tell us some of the things that you've discovered about this beautiful universe. Well, something, I wasn't the one who discovered it just on my own. This was a couple of papers that I was a co-author on with many other talented collaborators. But we, just a few days ago, we submitted a paper where what we did was we used our telescope. It's called the Atacama Cosmology Telescope. It's in Chile, or it was in Chile. It, it finished observations last year. But we used this telescope to make a map of the largest distributions of matter. So basically, in the universe, how is matter distributed on the largest scales? And it turns out, and we already knew this, this has been known for many years now, but on the largest scales, and indeed on all scales, most of the stuff in the universe, most of the matter, isn't atoms, isn't made out of the same kind of stuff that we are. So we're made out of, you know, electrons and protons that make up atoms like hydrogen and helium and carbon and nitrogen and so on. It turns out that only about 15% of all the matter in the universe is made up of atomic matter like we are, or like stars or, or planets are. About 85% of the universe is made up of what we call dark matter. When we made this map, we were really making a map mainly of the dark matter and how it's clumpy on scales of millions of light years. Why do we call it dark matter? Because we can't see it directly. It's dark because it doesn't interact with light. Like atoms, like, like I'm looking at you right now, I can see you because the light is reflecting off of you and, and entering into my eyes. With dark matter, though, light just kind of passes through it. It doesn't interact with it. And so that's, the, you know, that's a fact about our universe that many people find, including myself, find fascinating that the majority of the matter out there we can't even see. We just know it's there because it, it has mass, so it, it has a gravitational effect. That's what we can measure. But apart from that, we really don't know what it is. Well, that, that is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. So you managed to map that out, like all this dark matter. You have a sense of now of where it is. Yeah, we weren't the first. Actually, we were the first to do this back in 2011 with this specific technique. So this telescope is designed to look at what's called the cosmic microwave background which is the oldest light in the universe. So the microwave background is light that was emitted in the afterglow of the Big Bang very soon, or very soon after the beginning of the universe, about 14 billion years ago. And it's been traveling for 14 billion years towards us. So when we look at it, we're looking at the universe before there were stars or galaxies, when the universe was basically just a hydrogen and helium gas spread everywhere. 
But that light, I mentioned it's been traveling for 14 billion years, along its way, the light gets bent a little bit by the gravity of this lumpiness, you might say, of the dark matter, of these large-scale features in the universe. And we were able to measure that, the bending of that light, and convert that into a map of how the mass is distributed on the larger scales. Just out of curiosity, so there's been light traveling for 14 billion years from somewhere, 14 billion light years away, to us. Has light also been traveling from here to that place 14 billion light years away? Yeah, really good question. First of all, it's more than 14 billion light years because the universe has expanded all that time. So it's been traveling for 14 billion years, but in the meantime, space has been stretching as the universe expands. So the actual distance is more like 45 billion light years that we're looking at. So it has traveled 45, no, it has traveled 14 billion light years, but the distance, the the road got longer. Yeah, the distance today is 45 billion years because all that while the universe has been stretching. Yeah, it's stretched by about a factor of a thousand since the light emitted. So the universe has grown by about a factor of a thousand. And what one thing that does is it stretches the wavelength of the light. So light, you know, light is a wave. It has a wavelength. And when it was emitted 14 billion uh, years ago, we would have been able to see it with our eyes if we could have survived those really hot temperatures. But because the universe is stretched by a factor of a thousand, the wavelength of the light is also stretched by about a factor of a thousand. So today it's microwave light, hence cosmic microwave background. So it's now like, you know, a few millimeters to a few centimeters in wavelength. And so that light is traveling in all different directions. Exactly, yeah, because in the early universe, this kind of gas of hydrogen and helium, which later would have collapsed to form stars and galaxies and so on, but early on it was just spread everywhere. And it was everywhere, and everywhere it was glowing. And the light started traveling in all all directions. So we're just seeing the light that happens to arrive in our direction from 45 billion light years away. But you're right, where we are now would have been emitting light and that would have, you know, if they're aliens 45 billion light years away, they could be looking at the cosmic microwave background that originated from... And they'd say, by God, Adam Hicks was right. The universe, <laughs> the dark matter is, <laughs> is spread out like this clumpy way. Okay, now I don't know how to ask the next question, but where did that light come from or how did it come into existence? You helped me ask that question. What's the, what is the right way to ask that question? From whom did... <laughs> the microwave background wasn't emitted right at the Big Bang. It was emitted about 400,000 years after the Big Bang, which sounds like a long time, but it's actually like a blink of the eye compared to 14 billion years. So the universe had been growing and evolving for a little bit of time before this light was released. So the question is, like, what happened at t equals zero at the very beginning? What's really amazing is that we... No, sorry, you're in Ireland now, so when you say T, you mean time. Yes, yeah, uh, so in... Not the caffeinated drink, right. Well, I'm a, I'm a huge tea drinker, so I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I appreciate yeah. the pun, but no... T equals zero, I like Irish people, like, just... <laughs> Having panic attacks. Okay, <laughs> time equals zero. Yeah. Well, there, there was no, there were no tea plants back then either. So, but there were no Irish people back then either to be deprived of it. So, okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, continue. Sure. I think what I was saying is, what's really amazing is that we understand physics well enough to describe how the universe behaved and was acting back, not even to the first second after the Big Bang, but to a small, small fraction 
after the Big Bang. We understand how physics works, how matter, how radiation, how space and time behave. We have empirical ways of verifying that our theory holds up. However, there is a certain period before which we don't understand scientifically how to describe the universe. When the universe was very, very young, and again, we're talking in a very small fraction of the first second, it would have been so hot and so energetic and so densely packed together that our current theories of physics just break down. So kind of one of the huge questions is, what happened in that tiny fraction? Was it really the beginning of time? Was it a transition from some other state that we don't know how to describe scientifically? And that currently is scientifically an open question. Out of interest, would the physics of the resurrection have any sort of relation with the physics of you know, the act of creation? Interesting question. I wouldn't want to speculate on something like the physics of the resurrection. Because we are talking about light as well in the resurrection, aren't we? Oh, well, I'm not sure I'd want to push that analogy too far. Okay, right. My angle in on this is the various experiments that have been conducted on the Shroud of Turin. So it's really hard for scientists to explain how the Shroud of Turin was made or how the image on the Shroud was made because it's so thin. The shroud isn't discolored all the way through. It's just like the top fibril on the top and bottom layers of the shroud, of the fabric. And one theory is that it was just an incredibly powerful but short burst of light which caused this discoloration. So that's, that's why I'm thinking that some kind of light event would that sort of connect creation and resurrection. I would, I would hesitate to make like a scientific connection like that, even though I think it's very, I, I'd never heard that idea before about the Shroud of Turin, even though I would, I'd be interested in kind of scientific investigations around an object like that. However, the resurrection is a supernatural and religious event. You know, as, as Christians, we believe that it really was a real historical event, but it's also more than that. It's a revelation of God and a divine act that, that has an impact on us 2,000 years later. So there's much more to it than simply the historical event, true as that is. One thing I was going to mention, though, is that it's interesting. The Bible talks about creation from nothing only in a couple of places, and, and scholars even kind of dispute the degree to which it's speaking about the doctrine that, that developed in the early church that we call creation from nothing, that I think certainly has a biblical basis, but it, it's a complicated question. At any rate, there are a couple of places that do seem to speak about creation from nothing, and what's interesting is that they're in the context of resurrection. So, so just to give one of them, in the second book of Maccabees, chapter 7, it's depicting the martyrdom of the mother and her seven sons, and she's exhorting her sons to have faith in God. And at one point she says that it's God who has the power to resurrect us from the dead. It's, it is he who created the world from nothing. I'm not quoting the scripture directly there, but it's interesting that creation from nothing is juxtaposed with resurrection, which kind of highlights the providence or the act of God in both of these. Right. And also theologically as well, the resurrection brings about the new creation and the new creation of humanity and, and the cosmos. So yeah, the two are certainly linked in the scriptures often. The Abrahamic doctrine of creation really says that God provides being to everything, right? And that means that at all times, everything depends upon God. It's not simply 
that he pushed a button 14 billion years ago and then dusted off his hands and, and walked away. No, the, the Christian and Jewish and Muslim notion of creation is that God holds being in being through his free and gracious act. I think that's such an important message for Christians and, and well, for everyone really to take on board. Science really takes the existence of things for granted. And it's just about, okay, it's all there and we're just trying to understand it a bit better. Whereas for a person of faith or if you're a person of faith who believes in God, the creator, the fact that anything exists at all is an absolute wonder and a source of awe and joy, really. I try and bring myself back to this now and again. When the world isn't all that I want it to be, I try and kind of calm myself down by kind of saying, but isn't it a wonder that it exists in the first place? Like, it didn't have to exist. I didn't have to exist. And yet it does. So it seems like a good place to enter into the difficulties and challenges of the world rather than just sort of looking at the deficit of what it's not. And that comes back, I think, to contemplation. Because there's a difference between trying to figure out how things work and trying to navigate your way through life and worrying about the difficulties of life and so on. There's a difference between that and stopping and contemplating and being impressed or struck, as, as you were describing, by existence itself, by the world itself, by the, by the sheer givenness of the world. It's kind of that insight that the world is given that feeds into an idea like creation. So on this podcast, we often try and bring in some kind of uh, Ignatian or, you know, some St. Ignatius inspiration. What would you say to, you know, how could you speak to that, Adam, that your study of cosmology and the universe, how does St. Ignatius inspire you in that? Or does he bring anything to your life as a cosmologist? Well, in Ignatian spirituality, one of the catchphrases is finding God in all things. And you literally are looking at all things. <laughs> With very low resolution. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, when you first hear that, it might sound might sound kind of vague, maybe, or, or aspirational. But there's something spiritually and theologically deep about the notion that God is in all things. There's a place in the Summa Theologiae where Thomas Aquinas is speaking about creation, God in creation, and he says that God is in all things most intimately. Because he is the creator, because he is, as I said earlier, holding everything in being, that means that he's intimately present to everything that exists and that he is in all things. And there are many different ways that you can, can approach that to use kind of your language of joy, that you can rejoice in that. And I think science is one of them, but it's not, it's not the only one. It can be through the social sciences, it can be through history, it can be through literature, it can be through just going on a walk in nature with with a friend it's inexhaustible adam it's just fantastic to talk to you about these things and you're a real gift for the church and for the world and it's quite providential i think that your life story has brought you into the fields of science and and philosophy and theology and yeah i hope i hope you might come back on the podcast some other time and join us again because it's a real treat and honor to speak to you about these questions yeah thanks so much for coming on wish you the best of luck you're giving a paper in Maynooth. that's right it's on the big bang and and creation precisely um just before we go are there any resources you would recommend to listeners who may have some kind of interest in these questions 
maybe two things I'd recommend. One, if you don't mind, I've written a few articles myself, particularly for America Magazine, which is a Jesuit publication in Canada and the US. So you can just search for my name and I've written on kind of topics of faith and science. The other resource I'm thinking of is one of, so in addition to being, my main position is at the University of Toronto, but I'm also an adjunct scholar at the Vatican Observatory. And the Vatican Observatory has a really good website the Vatican Observatory Foundation that has a very active blog and a lot of resources that deal with faith and science and astronomy and faith in particular. So that would be another resource to check out. Great. We'll put those links in the in the show notes. Adam, listen, great to talk, great to catch up and uh, may God bless you and all your work. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. And thanks everyone for tuning in as always. And may God continue to bless you. And we'll see you soon here on Sons of Ignatius.